Jeremiah in? Major prophets. Major prophets, yeah. And you can see why he'd be a major prophet with 52 chapters here. Um, so here we have the outline, and um, we're in uh, section 7 Judgment Against the Nations. We've just got, it's actually only one nation left to go this morning. What's that one? Babylon. Babylon, yeah. And then we'll do a historical appendix uh, thrown in at the very end. Okay, so Judgment Against the Nations, chapter 50, Prophecy Against Babylon. Um, verse 2 Declare and proclaim among the nations. Proclaim it and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Bel has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. For a nation has come up against her out of the north. It will make her land an object of horror, and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off. They have gone away. In, in these verses, he mentioned Bel and he mentioned Marduk. What are those? Yeah, those are idols that, that Babylon especially was worshiping. Now, and what direction do you say the nation is going to come from? From the north. From the north. Do you, do you know what nation was the one that eventually attacked Babylon? Medes and the Persians. Yeah, the Medes and the Persians. So, uh, the Median Empire, you see, is just northeast of Babylon. Here's the city of Babylon, and, and Babylon itself. If you consider the Babylonian Empire, it's a big fertile crescent. But there's mountains in between. Here you have the Zagros Mountains, and and that kind of separated the val, the you know the flat river valley from the people off to the east. So the Medes were here, the Persians are down here. But uh, they they went in together, and they would have come in from the standpoint of Babylon. It would have been an attack from the north. Um, <clears throat> So um, then in verse 4, he mentions the sons of Israel. And where are they going to go back to in verse 5? Zion. Yeah, they're going to get to go back to Zion. Um, and in verse 6, he gives a little bit of a summary here. My people become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. What, is it, what does Jeremiah mean by their shepherds? The false prophets and the priests, the princes. Yeah, false prophets, priests, princes, kings—you know, the, the, all the leaders of the people—they were the shepherds. They led them astray. They made them turn aside in the mountains. They've gone along from mountain to hill and forgotten their resting place. All that came upon them have done what? Devoured. Yeah, devoured them. Because of course, shepherds are supposed to be, be guarding them, but the shepherds weren't doing that. Their adversaries have said, "We are not guilty." Inasmuch as they have sinned against the Lord who is the habitation of righteousness, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. And then down at 11, um, this is still talking, this is again talking to Babylon. And what was Babylon's attitude when it was plundering these other nations? Yeah, they were just having a great time. You skip about like a threshing heifer and they like stallions. <laughs> um, your mother will be greatly ashamed. She who gave you birth will be humiliated. 
Behold, she will be the least of the nations, a wilderness, a parched land, and a desert. Because of the indignation of the Lord, she will not be inhabited, but she will be completely desolate. Everyone who passes by Babylon will be horrified and will hiss because of all her wounds. Now, there was another prophet that prophesied much the same thing to come upon Babylon. What was that other prophet? Yeah, Isaiah had said the same thing. And I've got a couple of pictures that I sh- showed when we were doing Isaiah. This is this black and white picture of Babylon it was taken back in the 1930s. <clears throat> and you can see that what was predicted here it pretty accurately came to pass. Completely desolate. Um, a wilderness, a parched land, and a desert. Um, here's a shot that was taken by Farrell Jenkins some years ago. Um, this hill... That's what used to be Babylon. Um, Almost all of the ancient cities back then ended up as hills like this, unless they're still occupied, like you know Jerusalem is and Damascus. But um, they they call these a tell, T-E-L. And you can go over to Israel today, and you'll find you know tell this and tell that. They'll have names for these tells. And originally, it was a city that. Typically, you would want to find the highest spot around to put your city on. But in this case, this is a very flat area. What that hill comes from is from having a city on there. Over the centuries, um, you know, as either the city would be invaded and burned down and they have to build up again each time they're building up a little bit on a bunch of rubble, it's a little bit taller each time. And, and I mean, Babylon had, by the time that this was being talked about, Babylon had been exist, in existence for over a thousand years. It, it, and it had been conquered several times. So, um, you eventually get a fairly high a hill, which is all formed from just the rubble of people living there for hundreds of years. But that's what it looks like. Nobody lives there uh, today. They haven't for many hundreds of years. All right, um, verse 17, back to Israel again here. Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. Uh, the first one who devoured him was the king of what? Assyria. Assyria. And then the last one was Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and his land just as I punished the king of Assyria. What was the capital city of Assyria? Nineveh. Nineveh, that's right. And um, who had conquered Nineveh? Yeah, Babylon had. <laughs> and so now it's going to be Babylon's turn to, to be conquered in, in, in turn. Um, and then in verse 20, In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Of course, they'd gone into captivity because of their sins. So now God's going to pardon their sins, so then there's nothing stopping Him from bringing them back. And so that's exactly what He's going to do. Then in verse 23, He's again talking about Babylon. And what does He call Babylon in this verse? Hammer of the whole earth. The hammer of the whole earth. God had used Babylon to punish many, many nations. But now it's Babylon's turn. Um, and then um, in verse 29, 
Summon many against Babylon. All those who bend the bow. Um, at the end of the verse, what's the reason why she's being punished in this case? Arrogance. Yeah, arrogance. Um, which I think is going to be true of any any nation that does much conquering is going to be arrogant. You know. Who can stand up against them? I mean, there's just like a winning football team. You know, we're the greatest. <laughs> but and, and football teams usually lose every so often. But Babylon, I don't think it lost at all up to this point. Um, in verse 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the sons of Israel are oppressed and the sons of Judah as well. And all who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Well, now, that's very typical. I mean, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, I mean, if, you, if it was up to Egypt, when was Egypt going to let them go? Never. <laughs> they were never going to let them go. No. Um, and if you look back in our country, back in the 1800s, I mean, when were the slaveholders going to let their slaves go? Well, that, that's not what they want to do. And Babylon has taken these people and their slaves. Why would they want to let them go? Well, God's determined they are going to let them go, and so He's going to punish Babylon for it. Um, so then in verse 39, He's going to tell what's going to dwell in Babylon. What, what's it going to be? Desert. Desert creatures, yeah. He mentions jackals. He mentions ostriches, yeah. It's going to be like what other nation in, in verse 40? Yeah, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, um, people aren't even exactly sure where Sodom and Gomorrah are today. It might, might be actually underneath the southern end of the Dead Sea, but there's certainly nobody living in that, in that area now where, where those towns were. So it's going to be very much like that. Then verse 43 is interesting. The king of Babylon has heard, and what does he do? Yeah, he gets very scared. And this reminds me of the story. Remember the story of Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5? When he sees the handwriting on the wall, and what does it say about him? His knees were <laughs> knocking. <laughs> and that very night is when um, Babylon was conquered. And of course, he was put to death. Alright, so uh, that was chapter 50. Then chapter 51, very novel title here, Prophecy Against Babylon, continued. <laughs> two, they, Babylon is so bad they get two whole chapters about them. Um, in verse 5, um, For neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Where else in the Bible do we read about flee from Babylon? Yeah, that's right. This theme is picked up again in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. Um, and it's addressed to God's people instead of to Israel. It's addressed to the Israel God, the church. Flee from the midst of her so you won't be caught up in her destruction. In verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. That's also in the book of Revelation. The idea that Babylon has 
given of her wine to all the nations of the earth. All right. Um, verse 8 Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. Well, of course, she can't be healed. We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country, for her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very skies. So, you see, Babylon becomes a foreshadowing of the, the arch enemy of God's people. And in the book of Revelation, uh, John shows how these prophecies against a local nation, Babylon, apply to, in a much more universal sense to the enemies of the church down through the ages. Um, and, uh, and those enemies will ultimately be destroyed. We're still looking forward to when that's going to happen. Um, verse 11, Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. Who is the Lord bringing against them? The Medes. The Medes, yes. And so we, we bring this chart up again where we've got the map of the Medes. Um, verse 15, It is He who made the earth by His power. Now, this is talking about God, of course. It is He who made the earth by His power who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He stretched out the heavens. So God, of course, is great. But in contrast, in verse 17, all mankind is stupid. Why are they so stupid? They yeah, they're making idols. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. So um, Babylon trusted in their idols. Israel trusted in the true God. Babylon was the stupid one. Verse 19, the portion of Jacob is not like these. Now, this is a bit of a challenge. What does he mean by the portion of Jacob? I don't think so. That, that's what you think about if you just read the first line. I think he's talking about God. He says, the portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all is he. And of the tribe of his inheritance, Lord of hosts is his name. So he's contrasting idols with the portion of Jacob. God is Jacob's portion. Uh, just like God should be our portion, we should be delighted in, in him. And, and then in ver verse 20, God says, You are my war club, my weapon of war. With you I shatter nations, with you I destroy kingdoms. I think he's talking again back to Babylon. Um, and so he tells all the all the destructive work that God had done with Babylon because he wanted to punish Judah, he wanted to punish Moab, he wanted to punish Edom, and all those other nations that we read about last week. But the big problem with Babylon is he did not understand he was a tool in the hand of God. He thought it was his own great power and might that were doing this, and God's not going to put up with that attitude. Uh, so in verse 24, But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Um, and then in verse 26, They will not take from you even a stone for a corner nor a stone for foundations, but you will be desolate forever, declares the Lord. Now what he's talking about here is very typically when a, a nation would be, a city would be destroyed, Someone else would come along later, and they would use the stones that had been there to, you know, to build their their new city. Um, Rome um, 
Rome has suffered several desolations over the years, and um, so they had a lot. You know, a lot of their ancient buildings had sort of become ruins. And the people who lived there would just go there. If, if you need some marble, how do you go and you can get some marble off from from this building? You need some some other kind of stone to make a a cornerstone for your house. You know, you just you know, no need to go quarry it. You can just take it from you know this this ruined building. Nobody's going to do that with Babylon. Why not? Yeah, but from their from people's perspective, they're not thinking of that. No right, they don't. They don't live there. I mean, who's going to travel 200 miles to get a rock? <laughs> and you know, there's no one lives around there, so that's why they're not taking stones to build a their their new house. Um, then, who's talking in verse 34? He says, "Me." In verse thirty-four, who's me? Jerusalem. Yeah, this is this is Jerusalem or Judah talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, as if you know Jerusalem was a person. Nebuchadnezzar has devoured me, and so may in verse thirty-five, may the violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, the inhabitant of Zion will say. May my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem will say. And then verse 49, Indeed Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel, as also for Babylon the slain of all the earth have fallen. Verse 57, I will make her princes and her wise men drunk, her governors, her prefects, and her mighty men, that they may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. He's using drunkenness in, in a symbolic sense. He's taking away their wisdom. But in fact, if you read Daniel chapter 5, you find that Belshazzar was having a drunken feast <laughs> the night in which his city was being taken. What, what a fool. Now, in, in verse 59, we get a little historical uh, incident here. The message which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the grandson of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah the king of Judah to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Now, this is not something that I had read about other places. Um, that Zedekiah actually in the fourth year of his reign went all the way to Babylon to deliver tribute to Babylon. But it's not a surprise because Zedekiah would have had to have been tributary to Nebuchadnezzar or else he wouldn't have been king because the previous king, Jeconiah, had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. So the next king, obviously, is someone appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He appointed uh, Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, to be the king. And so Zedekiah had to go and take tribute. And apparently he went personally. I think Nebuchadnezzar wanted to look him eye to eye and make sure he was still loyal. <laughs> well, of course, he's not going to go by himself. There's going to be a bunch of other people with him. And so Jeremiah takes advantage of this opportunity to send a message with with someone who was in his entourage, who was Sariah. Now, interestingly enough, Sariah is actually the brother of Baruch. His father and grandfather, the exact same names as Baruch's father and grandfather. And Baruch was was who? And he's a scribe that had written down uh, the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah dictated them to him. And so, 
he told Sarai to read this scroll to the people who had already been taken captive. This was the, the 10,000 who were taken captive at the same time as Jehoiakim. And then what he tell him to do as soon as he finishes reading the scroll? <laughs> Throw the river. And this is going to illustrate what's going to happen to Babylon. It's going to sink just like this scroll is sinking since a stone is tied to it. <laughs> Alright, so now the last chapter is just a historical appendix. The fall of Jerusalem. Um, and he gives a summary here in verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamilton, the daughter of Jeremiah of Lebanon. That's not the Jeremiah that wrote the book. Um, and of course, he, as we know, he was evil. Um, and so it tells about how Nebuchadnezzar came and, and conquered the city. And then uh, what did Zedekiah do as soon as Nebuchadnezzar's army came in? <laughs> he went out the back gate. <laughs> but they caught him. <clears throat> and they brought him to Riblah. And in verse 11, what was done to Zedekiah? Yeah, he was blinded. And he was taken to Babylon, put in prison, and where he stayed until, until his death. Um, and then in addition to what they did to Zedekiah, what they do to some other places in verse 13 and 14. <coughs> hey, Matthew? Yeah. Burned the temple, burned people's houses, tore down the walls. Um, which what's the book where they build the walls back? Yeah, Nehemiah. We've already done Nehemiah, but it actually historically comes after this uh, in chronological order. Um, and then when it, and it goes into a little more detail in verse 17, when they're destroying the uh, the temple. The bronze pillars are still there. Now understand, they've already sacked the temple once. When they took the 10,000 of Babylon, they took a lot of the gold from the temple at that time. But they didn't take the bronze. I mean, these, these bronze pillars, they're not nearly as valuable as gold, but you know, they're worth something. And they're huge. I mean, 18 cubits, 27, uh, 18, yeah, 27 feet tall, and you know, huge diameter. So, how how could they carry pillars that big to Babylon? Break them up. Yeah, they're just going to use them for scrap bronze. They just chopped them up, um, and it mentions a bunch of other stuff they took as well. So it's it's pretty sad. Um, and then in verse twenty four, it tells about how they they gathered up a bunch of people from the city. Now, these are representative people. Um, they gathered a, one official who was overseer of the men of war. Seven of the king's advisors, the scribe, um, sixty people of the people of the land, and what they do to them in verse twenty-seven. Yeah, they killed them. Yeah, so and these it kind of represented the people who had held out for so long against Nebuchadnezzar's siege. So it was kind of a symbolic um, execution. I mean, they were literally executed, but. most of the people got taken captive, but he, he wasn't going to let everybody get off scot-free. Um, and so then in um, in verse 31, it, it ends on a, as happy a note as the author can come up with here. Um, Jehoiakim, the guy that was taken captive at the you know just before Zedekiah became king, he was taken off 
And he was in captivity for many, many years. But um, in the first year of the, the reign of Evil Merodach, uh, Evil Merodach brought him out. This was the 37th year of his captivity. So for 36 years, Jehoiakim had been in prison. Then in the 37th year, a new king came along. Not this, not directly after Nebuchadnezzar. I think there were several kings there. But uh, eventually a new king came along. And for some reason, he liked Jehoiakim and he brought him out of prison and let him eat um, at his table. For the re- and so he stayed there the rest of his life, but he, he he had a regular allowance given him and didn't have to be in prison. So that was hopeful. But at the time this was written, of course, they hadn't gotten gotten to go back to Jerusalem. So this is the that's the most hopeful thing they can put at this point. Any comments or questions on the book of Jeremiah? All right. Um, all right, so here we have our chart of the books of the Bible since we're starting a new book. And we're in this section called Major Prophets. Isaiah was the first, Jeremiah the second, Lamentations the third. Lamentations is a very small book, smaller than a lot of the minor prophets. So why is it here in the Major Prophets? Jeremiah. Yeah, it, probably it was written by Jeremiah. So it just And it goes immediately after <laughs> the book of Jeremiah. So we'll do Lamentations. Then Ezekiel is another major one we'll be doing. We'll start that one next week. So the outline of Lamentations is five chapters, so we have five points. The reason, the reason it's such a simplistic outline is that it's in fact five poems. Each chapter is a poem. How many how many verses in the first chapter? Twenty-two. Twenty-two. Anyone happen to know how many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? Twenty something. Yeah, yeah, it's twenty-two <laughs> in fact. <laughs> um, Four of these five poems are acrostic poems. What do we mean by an acrostic poem? First, the first letter of each line is the order. Yeah. In this case, the first line, first letter of each verse starts with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's like starting with A. Verse 1 starts with A. Verse 2 starts with B. Verse 3 starts with C. And so forth. In Hebrew, the first letter is Aleph and the second letter is Beth. They correspond with our A and B. But... The third letter is not a C. It kind of goes off from there. Um, so, whenever you see an acrostic poem, one of the things you would know immediately is that this is not a poem that was written in the heat of the moment. I mean, someone's going to have to sit down and really do some some studying and some thinking to come up with an acrostic poem. You can't just you know, start speaking out and and have a, a well put together poem like that. So Jeremiah probably wrote this at least a few months after it all happened. He's been thinking about it and he puts it down in a form that and it's amazingly good poetry. It's just it's even without the acrostic in English it comes across um, and as very very moving poems. Each one is a separate poem, but they all go together, of course. Um, the fifth chapter is not acrostic, but the fifth chapter has 22 verses, so it has the same number of stanzas as all the other poems, but it just didn't... He, he had run out of alphabet. I don't know. It just um, Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says it was written by Jeremiah. Although in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they have a verse preceding the, verse 1 that says it was written by Jeremiah. So the, the the tradition goes back very far, uh, you know that because that was 
two or three hundred years before Christ when that was translated. So they, they and, and there's no nobody's ever suggested anyone else um, has write, wrote it. And it certainly, as we go through, we'll see it sounds a lot like Jeremiah. Um, all right, so we'll look at um, chapter one, Jerusalem's misery and desolation. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. What do you call that when you have a uh, an object like a city and you and you talk about this object like this person is a lady? Personification. Yeah, personification. And that goes through the much of the of the whole book is uh, Jerusalem's being personified as a lady. Um, and in this case, she's compared to a widow. Um, it's just so, and you can see why this would be written in poetry. If this was in prose, it just wouldn't come across like this. But in poetry, you just really get uh, the emotional impact of the grief of the people who are observing this city that was once such a great city is just so lonely and deserted now. Um, she weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. What does Jeremiah mean when he talks about her lovers? <coughs> yeah. yeah, first and foremost it would be her idols. I mean, she she just went after all kinds of idols. Just wasn't satisfied with God. And and then secondly, it w- it would include the nations she was going to. The same nations where she got the idols from, she was also going to to get support. She would go to Egypt, you know, help us out from against the Babylonians, and she was forsaken by everybody. Judah has gone into exile under affliction, under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. And all her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. That's a pretty bleak start. The whole book is bleak. (laughs) Yeah. Verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. Why? At the end of that verse. What's the reason? Yes, God has done this because of her many transgressions. And you know, Jeremiah, of course, had been preaching this from the very beginning, but he wants to make sure people understand that now. Verse seven. Uh, sorry, uh, verse eight. Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. She just they're now just disgusted with her. Um, verse twelve. Who's talking in verse twelve? Yeah, this is Jerusalem talking. Um, see, we, we talked about Jerusalem as if she was a lady, and now from verse twelve to the end of the chapter, she talks in the first person. Again, as if she's a lady. Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there's any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. 
And so she goes on like this in verse 16. For these things I weep. My eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Well, again, it's, it's a poetic device that Jeremiah uses to, to make Jerusalem into a person and then have this person actually talk. But wow, what, what an impressive device. I mean, we just really feel the tragedy of this whole thing as the city talks as if she's a real person and this expresses how sad this is. Verse 18, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against His command. So Jeremiah wants to make sure everyone understands why this is happening. And, so, and eventually, the people who went captive, many of them did understand this. Um, verse 19, I called to my lovers where they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to restore their strength themselves. Nobody could help. Alright, let's go on to chapter 2, the next poem. Go back to the letter A. Um, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in His anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. And we've titled this chapter The Lord's Anger Against His People. Um, Verse 5, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and moaning. Verse 7, The Lord has rejected His altar. He has abandoned His sanctuary. What was His sanctuary? That's the temple, yes. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls for palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. Of course, they were, you know, when people would, would go to the temple on a day of a feast, they would be shouting and they would be rejoicing. And, but this noise was not a day of a feast. This noise was the noise of the, of the soldiers of Babylon uh, running around looting the place. That's what he's talking about. Verse 11, My eyes fail because of tears. Um, Now, I I don't think here, I don't think he is personifying Jerusalem here. So I think this would be Jeremiah saying this. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. And then in verse 13, How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. Where have we had that before? Well, that was Jeremiah's uh, accusation. Yeah, yeah, and and you remember that one false prophet that broke the the wooden yoke that off of Jeremiah's neck. Thus has the Lord broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, it was all uh, made up. It was a lie. And, and in verse fourteen, what should these prophets have done? Expose their iniquities. Right, expose their iniquity. Instead of saying, "Folks, good times are coming." which is what everyone wants to hear. They should say, folks, 
Good times are not going to come until you repent of your sins. Which is, of course, what Jeremiah had been saying, and people hated it, and, and, and they, they gave him a lot of trouble for that. Verse 17, The Lord has done what He purposed. He has accomplished His Word, which He commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and He has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. So, all Jeremiah's life he had been prophesying this would happen. And now it's happened, and he writes these poems about it. And he's very grieved. Of course, he was grieved in advance. I mean, the people thought, you know, it's Jeremiah's fault. You know, it, we wouldn't have so many bad things happen to us if we didn't have this guy, you know, being against us. But in fact, he loved these people, even though they were beating up on him. He was sorry to see that these things happen. All right, chapter 3, Judah's complaint and the basis for consolation. How many verses in chapter 3? 66. 66, so you'd think, wow, three times as long as the end of the chapter, and yet, how many pages? I mean, compare how many pages in chapter 3 to how many pages in chapter 2. Identical. Here's what's going on. If you look at each verse in chapter 2, you'll see it has six lines, which, which comes out to three pairs of lines. In chapter 3, how many lines in each verse. Yeah, just one pair of lines. The reason they've divided it differently, you say, well, this is crazy. Why would they do this? The reason they've divided it differently is in chapter 3, the first three verses all begin with the letter Aleph. Verses 4 through 6 each begin with the letter Beth. So that it's like A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C. It's the same length poem, but he just did a slightly different uh, acrostic pattern. So, not a major thing for us to know about, but I just thought it was interesting. So he begins in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. Now, it's, it's difficult to know specifically who's talking here, but I don't think it's Jerusalem talking because Jerusalem is a woman. And this, he says, I am the man. So I think this is Jeremiah talking in, the, in this chapter. Um, and as we go through the chapter, we're going to see some things that kind of relate to the things that happen in, in Jeremiah's life. Um, in verse 6, In dark places He has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. If, if I'm right that this is Jeremiah saying, I... He associates himself so closely with Judah that it's difficult to know in some of these verses to whether he's saying I in terms of I, Judah, or I in terms of I, Jeremiah. But there were certainly times when God had done exactly this literally in verse 6 in Jeremiah's life, in dark places making him dwell. I mean, he was in the dungeon and all that. But then if you think about it poetically, you think, and the same thing happened to Judah as well. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit difficult uh, poem to say exactly what he means. Verse 8, Even when I cry out and call for help, He shuts out my prayer. That sounds a lot like Jeremiah in, in the book of Jeremiah uh, where he, he complained to God. Um, he, he has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait. I mean, Jeremiah complained about God a number of times in the book because terrible things were happening to him. 
And the more he obeyed God, the more he suffered. And and he, you, I, I can't blame him for complaining. <laughs> um, and and to his credit, he went to the source to complain. He went to God. He didn't. He didn't go anywhere else. And God gave him answers. Sometimes you read the answer, they. That's not very sympathetic, God. You know, you're being a little bit hard on him. Well, I guess the only thing I can say is we're gonna to have to get over that. <laughs> Sometimes God does the same thing with us today. In verse fourteen, I've become a laughing stock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. You remember back in the book of Jeremiah when he was complaining about people that were you know doing these things to him and God said, Um <coughs> If you've run with men and, and stumbled, how are you going to handle horses? You know what he's basically saying is, you really haven't seen anything yet, Jeremiah. You know what what you're complaining about is nothing compared to what's going to happen. Um, but he was a laughing stock. People just, I mean, the popular prophets were the ones who were saying peace was on the way, and Jeremiah, for decades, was prophesying about the disaster that was coming, and the people just laughed at him. Says. Ah, you know, get with the program, Jeremiah. You know, this is, you know, God's not going to do this. Look at all these other guys telling us what's going to happen. And so they just laughed at him. And and you can't blame him for feeling bad about it and complaining. Um, Verse 19 Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And out of this, out of this hope that God would listen to him, also comes the hope that God will listen to Judah. Um, so in verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Boy, if anybody bore the yoke in his youth, it was Jeremiah. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. And he goes on in a similar fashion. Um, In verse 31, For the Lord will not reject forever. For if He causes grief, then He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindnesses. And then down to verse 39, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Now, I think that I think he means very literally any person. How can any of us complain about bad things happening to us in view of our sins? Every one of us is in this boat. And Jeremiah includes himself. I mean, Jeremiah certainly was not worshiping idols and doing these other things. But he's gotten close enough to God to realize, wow, you know, compared to God, I am just so unclean. And so why should anyone complain about how God is treating him in view of our sins? And certainly, Judah didn't have any cause to complain. Her sins were terrible. Verse 41, We lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and have not spared. Down to verse 49, My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. 
Verse 55. I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. <laughs> he was in some pits too. Um, but he, he's probably using this poetically. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. You drew near when I called on you. You said, Do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded my soul's cause. You have redeemed my life. And of course, that's the hope that Judah has. If God has saved Jeremiah in his desperate straits, then surely God will save Judah as well. If Judah will simply pray to God like Jeremiah has prayed. And so chapter 4, the contrast between Zion's past and present, another very sad um, poem. How dark the gold has become. What's the gold represent in these first two verses? And, um, well, I'm not so sure in verse 2. Um, that's the trouble with poetry. You can always get different interpretations. But um, he, he certainly the the temple stones were covered with gold, and they were poured out at the corner of every street. But in verse two, they become the precious stones, sons of Zion, weighed against fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hands. Um, so before and after, you know, before all these sons of Zion, the, the citizens of Jerusalem were were like gold. Now they're just dark, poured out at the corner of every street. In verse six, for the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands are turned toward her. If you think about that, and Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of the the. Um, term you use when you want to talk about someone that's exceedingly wicked. And, you know, they're as bad as Sodom. Because God rained fire and brimstone from above and they were wiped out in a matter of an hour or so. But now he says, well, but we're worse than that because our destruction was dragged out. And if you think about it, that's true. Which would you rather be in Sodom and Gomorrah or in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came in? Much easier to get it over with in in an hour, um, and then and the rest of the chapter really goes into some some details about how sad it was seeing these people starving to death, and the skin is all shriveled up because they just they can't get food. They did they're just they're in terrible shape. In verse nine, better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. In verse thirteen, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. And then finally, the last chapter, Judah's appeal for God's forgiveness. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. In verse 4, we have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. This is a sad situation after they've been um, made slaves. But finally, in verse 19, You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do You forget us forever? Why do You forsake us so long? Restore us to You, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. What a way to end. (laughs) What a way to end the book. Um, But Jeremiah is hopeful that God will restore them. Of course, he prophesied that God would. Any last thoughts? Yeah, John. Uh, I read one of the commentators referring to Solomon's uh, 
uh, time noonday that he, had, he and his entire court would go from the uh, from the palace to the temple, and it said they had all their fine clothes and they had uh, gold dust in their hair, so they would gleam in the sunlight. Yeah, I don't know about the gold dust, but they uh, his soldiers had shields made out of gold, made out of gold yeah. and they'd carry these out. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a a huge come down from Solomon to this. Yeah. All right, the book of Ezekiel next week. At least we begin it.